0: Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L.
1: This is Amber, and it's been a hot minute. So we are very yeah. happy to be back uh, with we the are.
0: new show, finally. just something for you guys to check out. We uh, are going to, I think, have a sit another sit-down this week, the two of us. And we talked about this a couple of days ago. Uh, just kind of have an update thing. Um, we know there's been some infrequency with the show as of late, and I'm not sure how that's going to even pan out for 2024, but there's... <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say this, and I don't want to go too deep. We're going we're, we're gonna to save this for the other thing, but... I will say that 2023 has probably been the most challenging year I have personally had in my well, entire life. It
1: was a struggle bus year. So, this has been
0: wa- and it, you know, it's not a pity party either. It's just it was just it was good stuff and not bus. so good stuff. Struggle bus. But we'll yeah.
1: we'll tell you all about uh, we we'll Past two months, few months. Yeah, um,
0: we'll tell you about that
1: uh, on, a, on an update show that we'll do. We'll record soon, so you can just yeah. hear us babble on this because we want to focus with this show on our amazing guests. Oh man, what a night! Uh, because I am a complete geek for the spiritualism era. And as I said in the show, I'm always shocked at how many people are not familiar or at least not more familiar with this era because everything that we look at right now as paranormal investigators or people interested in the supernatural, like if you love seances, if, you, if you've ever done ghost hunting, um, yeah. just, just how we view the paranormal all comes from this era where seances were born and mediums and Ouija boards oh, it's, it's yeah and, with, and all of that. Yeah. It's still with us today from this movement.
0: We mentioned that in the show. I think that's kind of where we both cut our teeth at was, you know, reading some of these old these old spirit photography books or and stories of course too. But looking at the this the a lot of these photos that came from the spiritualist movement that really and I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm try to trip up on that word again. I hate using the word creepy, but they just kind of got under your, they got under my skin, well, They so, left an impression. Well, why do you on me.
1: hate using the word creepy? Because they are creepy. I mean, it's a good word. Still, I don't. Do you wanna, think you're
0: I, being rude? No, I don't want. I don't want to equate it with a horror movie because it's not a horror movie. Oh, and that's what creepy kind of to me is a connotation of that. They're uh, unsettling. They're unsettling. They're they're disturbing,
2: and, and, and they they leave an impression on no, you.
1: Well, anything that has that true old timey look is naturally unsettling for a lot of people. Like like my toy monkey up there that I have to hide from our our,
0: that thing is our friends that are almost 50. We should take a picture of that and put it up because um, people would lose their minds. <laughs>
1: And he's probably, I think he's from the 30s or something. Yeah. But, you know, uh, creepy old mm-hmm. toys, that's another thing that's unsettling for most people. Yeah. But got whole
0: books of that here, too.
1: Um, I was so excited when uh, the pub, one of the publicists over at Llewellyn, uh, Kat Neff, uh, sent a box of books our way. And I opened it up and saw this book called Spirits, Seers, and Seances. And I was a scream because it was like right up my alley Victorian Spiritualism, Magic, and the Supernatural. And mm. I've always been really bothered by a lot of the books on uh, spiritualism. are... Uh, from an academic perspective nothing wrong with that it's wonderful information it's just they're not they're harder to read yeah Um, so this book is so accessible and awesome and so I really 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 if you love this era if you loved what we talk about um, you know go any to go to any bookstore, pick this up. Yeah. Um, we don't make any money off promoting these books. No, we just like we talking get, to other people. We get, pretty, the free, deep, get the free I get the free copy. You get all you
0: reap all the spoils <clears throat> on that. You get more books.
1: I get the I get more books out of it. And then I just love having, you know, supporting fellow authors out there. Yeah. And, as an author myself, I think it's very important, especially within our little niche subject genres, the stuff that we write in within the the paranormal. So a little bit about Steele, because she is uh flipping awesome. Yeah. Her bio, Steele, Alexandra Doris, is an author, artist, and Victorianist specializing in Victorian spiritualism, crime fiction, and the gothic novel. She is a PhD candidate in the English department at Stanford University, where she has taught courses on 19th century spiritualism and ghost stories. She holds an MA in English from Stanford University and a BA in anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin. Enjoy our discussion with Steele. Alexandra Doris. Talk about one of my absolute favorite topics tonight. I could talk. I could do like an entire year-long series on the whole (laughs) spiritualist era, uh, the Victorians. This is your favorite. It is my favorite thing. And while I was doing a lot of my talks uh, this October, yeah, uh, because I talk about the Michigan spiritualist scene because we were a big Uh deal in the Midwest. So Battle Creek was like the little kind of spiritualist. uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? Not community. No, no, no. Um, scene. No, well, yeah, kind of scene. Scene,
0: man. Why
1: am I blanking on the word? Doesn't matter. Whatever. Nah. The the main place for the Midwest. Um, it was a was... spiritual hub. Yeah, that whatever that works uh, for uh, <laughs> spiritualism. Here. And every lecture I would go to, and a lot of them were library people, mm-hmm. um, intelligent crowds. I would look at them and say, "Are you familiar with spiritualism?" And sometimes not one single person would raise their hand, which just just like boggled my mind, Mm -hmm. that more people don't know about this era, especially if they're interested in the paranormal. So with us today on this show is Steele Alexandra Doris, and we're going to be talking about her new book, Spirits, Seers, and Seances, Mm -hmm. Victorian (laughs) Spiritualism, Magic, and the Supernatural. Welcome to the show, Steele. I could seriously, like I said, talk about this for like a year with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you
2: so much for having me on
0: yeah thanks for taking some time to talk to us yeah. we really appreciate it
1: yeah so we have to get into um basically I, we got to give the listeners some little context and good old fashion 101 so can you give us a little definition of just who were the victorians and what was the whole start of the spiritualist movement like what brought this on
2: Absolutely. So the Victorians, the narrowest definition of the Victorians would be the people who lived under the reign of Queen Victoria from the late 1830s to the year 1900. Um, in the book, I use kind of the term transatlantic Victorianism. So obviously, in the 19th century, you know, North Americans, they weren't living under the reign of Queen Victoria. But because culturally there was so much back and forth, you know, they read each other's literature, the UK and the US really influenced each other a lot. Um, A lot of Victorianists will talk about a kind of transatlantic, like cultural rather than political Victorianism. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, when I talk about the Victorians, I'm using a slightly broader definition and I am sort of tossing the North Americans in there as well, even though they weren't ruled by Victoria. Um, And I'm basically talking about, um you know anyone in north america or the uk um who was alive basically between 1837 and 1900 i had to look that up today because i was
1: like why i mean we weren't british why do americans just say victorian era and then that just like what you said like just that cross kind of cultural um buddy buddy system that we had going on uh back then um uh, that's just, that was like, yep okay, that makes perfect sense. So now the spiritualist movement. this is right. a, this is such a fascinating era because a lot of people that um, are into the paranormal these like now in the paranormal investigation, um, have maybe met with a, a medium or participated in a seance. a lot of how we view and perceive the supernatural now goes all the way back to this era. So yeah. what was the spiritualist movement and how did it begin?
2: Absolutely. So the spiritualist movement is one of those things. There were a lot of factors that kind of set the scene for spiritualism that were kind of brewing in, in the you know first few decades of the 19th century. But spiritualism is one of those movements that has like a very, a very specific um, date that people tend to associate with its beginning, you know, and it's typically dated to 1848. And it's dated actually to the United States. It started in North America and then sort of um, crossed over to the UK. It was sort of imported. Um, And it's typically it's uh, comes out of Hydesville, New York. So upstate New York, uh, a region that at the time they referred to sometimes as the burned over district because it had been the center of a lot of kind of uh, religious revivals and a lot of sort of spiritual upheaval and very strong Um, spiritual groups had kind of moved through. And so there was a lot going on religiously and spiritually in upstate New York and the surrounding regions in the 1830s and 1840s. And there were some groups in the area, you know, Quakers, there were different sects who were interested in kind of the idea that people received messages from spirits or messages from angels. There was also like a mystic, an 18th century mystic named Swedenborg. And he his writings were very influential after his death. And there were Swedenborgians as well um, in in North America at the time. And they were also interested in this idea of receiving messages often more from angels than from the spirits of the dead. Uh, But what happened in 1848 is uh, this family, it's, you know, a really, you know, frequently told tale by now. But the Fox family, which included two daughters, Maggie and Catherine, uh, moved into an old farmhouse that already kind of had a weird reputation in in Hydesville, New York. And they began very quickly, the daughters began reporting that they were hearing kind of some of the same noises that a family before them had reported hearing in the house. They were hearing knocking sounds, rapping sounds, weird noises. Um, And the daughters, over the course of time, began experimenting with they sort of were convinced that there was some entity in the house and they wanted to experiment with communicating with it. And at at a certain point, the mother and father began to also hear noises as well. And then (laughs) the entire neighborhood got involved. And they sort of started devising a system to communicate with what they thought was this entity in the house. So it started with just kind of yes, no questions, and they were listening for knocking or rapping. And then people started listing um, the letters of the alphabet out loud, and they would kind of wait to hear a knock, and then they would start over again. And so using that system, words would be spelled out. And so basically, one of the things that was really, you know striking about that specifically was that the spiritualists really emphasized like sort of a back and forth communication. So it wasn't just like, oh, you go to sleep and you have a dream. A dream is sent to you by an angel or a spirit or something like that. They really believed in this kind of almost a conversational style, like a back and forth. Um, And so as news of the Hydesville wrappings, which is what they called them at the time, really spread throughout the area and then internationally. People began to experiment with holding their own, they called them at the time, like sittings or circles. And then eventually they started using the term seance, Uh, but their own like communication sessions basically with the spirits and that is what we traditionally think of as spiritualism that kind of like sit down and have a session have a conversation um and then the other hallmark of spiritualism i would say that really distinguishes it from like the quakers and the swedenborgians and some of the groups before that is that it they had this sort of philosophy about spirit communication that essentially Pretty much all people have some inherent mediumistic talent some people are much more talented than others uh, but that any person kind of can cultivate the ability to become Mm -hmm. more mediumistic and so they really rather than like telling people to sort of look to like spiritual elders in their community they really emphasize the idea that like you know, you could go to a séance, have an interesting experience, and then go home and try it yourself with your family. And so that I would say is like really yeah. that was unusual, <laughs> and that really marked kind of the the spiritualist movement. Yeah, that DIY
1: um, kind of spirit, uh, you know, <laughs> do it exactly. talking to the dead. <laughs> I mean, I feel like too that's why like the Ouija board which was born around this era around like, like 1891 gets patented and people can now bring, you don't even need the, the medium anymore has your intermediary between this world and the next. You can just have this piece of wood with two exactly. people sitting there, you know, it's like becoming more and more accessible uh, to everybody to talk to the dead. Um, uh, one of the things that I tell people when I do lectures and talk about this subject is how the civil war itself, yeah. Was like you had like all of these factors playing into um, this time frame to to bring about this movement. I think it's fascinating that the Fox sisters just kind of unintentionally started the movement, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. just two little kids. Maybe maybe just kind of pranking everybody, taking it too far. <laughs> Who knows? I like always try to be open minded with spiritualism because there there is which I want to get into that a little bit later in the show. But there is of course so much fraud within yeah. spiritualism and and within the supernatural no today yeah scott yeah what? it still happens what i know right <laughs> yeah so i i always try to give maybe uh, kate and maggie the benefit of the doubt that just maybe just maybe they had some mediumistic skills as you just said That spiritualists like to believe that every one of us has a little bit of something and we can kind of fine tune it and so i don't know uh but the where was i going with that where my thought bubble go scott
0: I just saw it explode. I power. know,
1: because I get so excited about this topic. <laughs> um, oh, oh, the Civil War. Like, so yeah. after, after like the Civil War ended, and you have this massive amount of just people gone, dead. And now you have this movement underlying here saying, hey, the dead aren't really gone. You can still talk to them. And I, and I think that also just helped usher in this desire to communicate with the dead even more.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I sort of think about the spiritualist movement as in a way being kind of bookended by two major wars, because in the beginning, one of the things that, as you say, like definitely helped it like take off in the United States was definitely the Civil War, the massive losses of the Civil War. Yeah. and then it was sort of it was sort of an, an interesting place by the end of the 19th century. Um, at one hand, on one hand, it had sort of grown exponentially, but on the other hand, there had been a lot of scandals at that point. You know, a lot of people. Had also sort of lost faith in the movement, and then they had sort of this like you know sort of double tragedy of they had their pandemic, they had the Spanish flu, and they had World War One. Yeah, um, which in Europe and the UK obviously was just you know between between the pandemic and World War One, it really took out a generation of young people, and so there was kind of a renewed resurgence of spiritualism in the years after World War One before it kind of faded away again
1: what would typically happen? I mean, we, we kind of know anybody that does paranormal investigation now, or you watch horror movies or any supernatural movie or whatever, and you see a seance. Was there anything going on in the Victorian seance that's different from now? Something that they would have done, um, that we don't do anymore.
2: Let's see. Yeah. I have have a few thoughts. The first thing I'll say, um, that's that sort of to start responding to that is that you know one of the things that was really fascinating to me you know when I first like came up with the idea and I was I was doing academic research and then I got the idea for this book you know one of the things that really made me want to write the book was because of the academic research that I was doing I started reading all of these spiritualist periodicals which there were so many they were such a prolific such a prolific movement they just wrote endlessly and I had no idea how much material spiritualist material was out there there's like you know monstrous The archives are huge, Um, and I was as a result of that really exposed to this whole other side of spiritualism when i think before i'd done that research all if you'd asked me about spiritualism my mind would have immediately gone to the seance right yep. i had a very vivid picture you know i like gothic horror i like supernatural horror i had a very vivid picture of okay the seance scene this kind of moment of drama but i had very little sense of the hours leading up to the seance the hours after the seance and like how the seance fit into the overall culture um so one of the things that i find really interesting is first of all um, they strongly advised that spirit circles meet regularly. So it was almost supposed to be like a regular Thursday thing or Friday thing. People were supposed to get together. They were also very, very almost obsessive about who specifically, and this I'm talking more about, um, I should distinguish between, there's sort of the more private seances, which are what we typically picture when we think of seances. There was also a massive um, trance lecture circuit, like a, a yeah. lecture circuit for trance performance where mediums, usually very high profile mediums, would get up and you know deliver sort of channeled, channeled trance speeches. And these were often much more about The nature of life and death the nature of morality the nature of religion you know all of these different things um but i'm thinking here of the more traditional kind of private seance so people who were experimenting with spiritualism at home with small groups friends neighbors um so there there was a lot of emphasis on having the right people at the seance so it was recommended that they had they had all kinds of recommendations about what would you know what made up kind of the right balance for a seance they recommended a lot of times an even number of people they were also very interested a lot of times in kind of like you know um even numbers of men and women um and then they were also actually they advised against having too many strong mediums present they were actually thought because they they had an understanding of mediumistic capability that was sort of rooted in kind of a magnetic theory. So they believed that certain people had um, sort of an innate negative magnetism. And those were the people who were more likely to be mediums. And then other people were sort of positively magnetized. And I can talk more about that's all coming out of theories, 18th century theories of like mesmerism, and animal magnetism. So that has like a very old history. But um basically they thought that one of the things and they thought women were more likely to be mediums and women women were more likely to be kind of negatively charged and men were a little less likely to be mediums and more likely to be kind of positively charged and there's a lot of also interesting gender like you could talk for a long time about 19th century understandings of gender and where that's coming from too there's like there's a lot um but anyway, they didn't want. They felt that if there were uh, mediums there who were very, very powerful mediums, that their really intense negative charge would overpower kind of the rest of the table. So you didn't want more than one or two well-developed mediums present. Um, and they really they advised that people meet regularly and not expect success on the first try. Um, or even the second try. I think they said something like if you've been meeting for a month with no success, then actually their, their, their recommendation was to either get rid of or add people. <laughs> so they, they were, they were quite harsh about like, you need the right people there. And if you're not having the right results, probably someone's got to go like give it time, but yeah. if there's still no success, like someone's got to go, or you've got to add someone, yeah. but you have to like shake it up somehow. <laughs>
1: Like you got a so, dud in there. I feel yeah. like I feel like that applies to now though. That people can be in certain. We we've done it. It's like Scott. I feel you've you've often felt like I don't know. Someone said you were what was it? A psychic that once said you were sort of a an energy.
0: Like, I don't remember this.
1: Oh, it was from a, like I don't want to call you an energy like
0: vampire.
1: Yeah, or something like spirits ran away from you. I don't know, but I I still think Is that it something
0: that's, I said. Yeah,
1: right. I think that kind of still lends itself to this no, day. No, like,
0: no, that and that was years and years ago. Yeah. Somebody did say that they're like you are. Well, it's it's unguarded. You know, you're not really putting a beacon out a lot of times. Yeah, and and, and when somebody does come to you, you're not very pleasant. It seems. Like your energy not very pleasant. <laughs> really, that was like it's not verbatim, but that was pretty much the gist of it. So
1: I, I like that the Victorians were picking up on that kind of stuff too with people. So. Uh, what kind of, at, at the Victorian seance, were they hoping to get to actually physically see something? Were they hoping to hear voices? I mean, I know all the fraudulent things that kind of would happen, but from a, from a genuine perspective, what were they hoping to get out, out of one of these seances?
2: So that's something that's something that I think definitely it varied from circle to circle, but it also really changed over time. So in the 1850s, 1860s, like the first few decades of the movement, the emphasis was really not typically on any kind of like physical manifestation. So they weren't they weren't as likely to expect to actually see something. They were much more focused on kind of auditory phenomenon a lot of times. So hearing knocking, hearing rapping, or things like a chill breeze moving through the room or the candles flickering, sort of things like that. Okay. Um. One of the things that happened is that the the culture around spiritualism, and this is part of what ended up leading to so many scandals later in the movement, is that as spiritualism really gained steam, there was kind of a very sensational sort of theatrical culture that developed around spiritualism. And I think a lot of people who were trying to work as mediums ended up almost kind of trying to one up each other. So, oh, and I should also say in the 1850s and the 1860s, the, the auditory um phenomena they were also uh there was a lot of emphasis on again sort of channeled trans speech so okay. someone in the circle being possessed by a medium be one of the mediums being possessed by a okay. spirit and speaking um, so you would hear you know the voice of the medium um but it, it would be like you know the words of the spirit basically so there was a real emphasis on that none of that though uh really required any kind of physical you know visual manifestation of anything um but as time went on and there were kind of more and more professional mediums i think mediums felt sort of more and more pressure to produce kind of more and more shocking yeah. um you know manifestations and that's where a lot of them sort of got into trouble i think um because you know uh, earlier in the movement a lot of the experiences that people could have around the circle they could be much more subjective, much more spiritual, you know, they were much more centered again around sort of trance and hearing things. And, and then later in the movement, there, there were a lot of much more kind of sensational there, there was interest in kind of ectoplasm. Oh, and yeah. that was where some of the, some of the kind of famous debunked mediums really got into trouble because they were, you know, uh, producing ectoplasm through very non-spiritual means, yes. let's say. So, you know, <laughs> Um And, and then also in a few cases, there were people who like hired someone to kind of run through the room in a white gown or something, and they would be like a ghost, you know? (laughs) So the culture really kind of, I think you could say it sort of became in a way less spiritual and more materialistic, literally in the sense of like, people wanted to see materials and materializations of people, uh, of spirits. And, and that was also, that was kind of, that was a bad moment for spiritualism, like sort of a bad development for spiritualism in a lot of ways, um, because for mediums who maybe were approaching it from from a more spiritual angle, they were interested in trance. They were interested in kind of, you know, the trance state. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this sort of like, can you produce ectoplasm? Yeah. You know, can you? And so I think um, that then tempted a lot of mediums to do like a lot of things that led to a lot of the high profile debunkings. Um because that that was the culture there was less of a culture around trance um and then uh yeah I think that was I had a second point but I think I actually covered it with the first point so anyway so it was it was just a very different Mm -hmm. it was a very different culture by then and it became much more sensational and much more focused around kind of the drama of materialization and then the drama of debunking
1: (laughs) yeah I it's I, I I feel like It was the the need for paranormal investigation like with by genuine scientists like formed to study like a lot of the the people the mediums the spiritualists um like and i i tell people and when i'm doing lectures that the father of american psychology helped found the american psychical research society and people Mm -hmm. are like what 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 (laughs) like like genuine like big deal people we're all interested in investigating supernatural phenomena, and a lot of that included these mediums to, you know, see if they're real or not. The mm-hmm. I know you're probably familiar with this. Um, I don't think you mentioned this one in your book, but the 19 was it 21 or 22 um, Scientific American uh, prize that was offered by the the oh, magazine no. where they w- wanted Mina Crand. Well, they were trying to find a genuine medium, and yeah. Houdini was part of that um vetting all these mediums and then the final person was Mina Crandon who when if you look up ectoplasm, you will see her with everything gushing out of her nose and her ears. And then of course she got involved with kind of like like a little romantically involved with some of the science guys. So you know it was like one of these things where you're like, oh God, no wonder they want to give her the prize so bad. (laughs) Um, <laughs> and, and she honestly, I mean, I'm not being crass. Like she would also let them inspect every part of her body and hide ectoplasm yeah. and other well, yeah, parts say, of your I,
0: body that you know, can <laughs> let it fall out of. Troy talked about that he did. in did in one of his lectures years ago. I remember yeah. he talked about that and yeah, that was part of the, yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's everywhere.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, so it, I mean, you know, and
0: not to cut you off, Amber, but yeah. you know, those photos, you know, even, oh, they're creepy. I mean, they're just still, they still, I mean, not, uh, let's just stay with the, the, up the from the neck up here uh, that that alone <laughs> is is creepy uh, yeah. it's very cool. very haunting to look at that you know even knowing that it's you know, pretty well. It's pretty, well, not really very real. No, but it's still there's just something about that that really creeps me out. Yeah,
1: like, if uh, if you Google ectoplasm photos, you know, you'll get something other than Ghostbusters and pink slime and well, slimer. Yeah, of course, you'll get some, <laughs> like, you'll
0: get some very old, a lot of very old photos. Yeah, and I think that's part of it too. Is just you know the the time that this was going on, and you know, and I hate to use the term creepy. Also, it it just something that gets under it's my skin a little. Just bit Just
1: different, and yeah, and some weird. of it was creepy because these people were regurgitating. Substances yeah. that they could, you know, like cheesecloth. Cheese cloth, cheesecloth uh, cheese was a big one. Um, animal parts, lungs, really cool, different really things, cool. and th- which is also yeah, they why they
0: use lungs too. Oh, uh, just a
1: lot of weird stuff yeah. to create these these things, and um, I don't know, it's bonkers if you just look if you look it up. So all the listeners go have fun doing that on your phones tonight
0: <laughs> if you haven't done it already yeah
1: i mean my, most of our listeners are probably familiar with some ectoplasm stuff out there but mm-hmm. um i i just it's and i feel like that was the height as like you were saying steel they each each medium sometimes had to maybe one up the next to mm-hmm. stay relevant and you start having these manifestations and a lot of the old newspapers when you're looking this up you'll be like you know so and so scott lambert the great you know manifesting medium manifest you know (laughs) manifestation (laughs) medium you know come tonight and it's like almost like a magician so anyway you have all this going on and then i feel like like the ectoplasm was the height of that kind of manifestation that people were trying to produce and then after that like there was nothing topping ectoplasm um the other thing that frustrated me uh, was, and you, and you bring this up in your book, Ed, is spirit photography, mm-hmm. because as someone who's been involved in paranormal investigation for many, many years, this has always been a frustrating topic. When I first got involved in this back in 2000, yeah. we had, you know, digital cameras and we were told to look for orbs and, well, I think know. that's
0: what, you know, and it, it started my entire, I'm going to use the J word, my entire journey well, on, on this, this whole thing was spirit photography. So yeah, the, those old, the, you know, the the gray lady, for example. I mean, which has, the, you know, has its own
1: the lady of Raynham Hall. Yeah,
0: great. Yeah, the, okay, yeah. the brown lady, God, brown the lady. lady. Brown. I'm looking at our, I'm looking at our gray cat right yeah. now, our female gray cat. Uh, yeah, the brown lady. Um, that particular photo, for example, or the tulip staircase, which is around the same area. Um, those photos were really, again, got under my skin. I'm like, what's really going on here? So that you know, spirit photography in and of itself and all of its forms. Yeah. I mean, you really can't replace something like that. It's, it's, it's fascinating.
1: Well, especially the old stuff with, (laughs) um, with Mumbler, um, Mm -hmm. which still, I'll I'll let you explain a little bit of that. Explain this whole like part of, uh, the spiritualist era when, when photography gets in the mix.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So Um, Let's see where to start. The first thing I think is really, you know, really interesting about in general, the 19th century spiritualist movement that ties into photography is they were extremely fascinated by technology so a lot of times I think now when people kind of embrace the Victorian era to us we think of them as like you know such an analog kind of Luddite culture you know compared to us mm-hmm. um but the spiritualists were fascinated by the marriage of kind of you know religion spirituality spiritualism and technology and they saw themselves as living in like a deeply technologically innovative era because they were you mm-hmm. know um And they had, you know, among other things, they had the invention of photography. um, The you know, they had the massively expanding railways and um, the telegraph as well, which was a huge deal. So um, basically, uh, photography really, you know, the first photos and there were a few different technologies that were used. So the first photos, depending on what technology you're talking about, they typically date to around the 1830s. But they sort of really became... And again, they didn't become like available for the masses in the way that we now have on our cameras, but like yeah. photography studios were set up and people could go in and have their picture taken and they would pretty much always go into a studio because those first cameras were enormous yeah, and they took forever to take the photo. So you really, you might have to sit for like 10 minutes or something like that perfectly still. So it was not really feasible to do photography at home um, unless you were like a professional photographer, you know, and, and then maybe you could take your equipment somewhere, but For the most part, people would go into studios most of the time. Um, And this was something that was developing in the 1850s and the 1860s, right as in the United States, one, spiritualism is taking off and two, um, the Civil War was erupting. And and then also the Civil War really spurred on interest in photography, because if your loved one is going away to war and you might not see them again, um, you want a photo of them before they go and they might want to take a photo of you as they go away to war. So people were there was sort of this boom in photography around the time of the Civil War. And Mumler, William Mumler, um, was making he was actually he was working as a jeweler for a while, but he was experimenting with photography um, in the first year, right before, right after the outbreak of war. let's see I think it's 18 I don't have the book with me I think it was 1862 that he was doing this Mm -hmm. 1861 or 1862 um the story goes and I will say with Mumler like Mumler is a fascinating character you have to take everything with Mumler with a grain of salt because the man had layers upon layers upon layers so but the story as it is told (laughs) goes that he was experimenting alone in his studio and he took a you know basically a selfie but like he you know um sat down in his studio and took a photo of himself and um when he developed the photo there was this half you know half transparent girl who he later claimed looked a lot like a deceased cousin of his Mm -hmm. in the frame and there was supposed to have been no one else in the studio he was there alone um, and the way he tells it he wrote an autobiography later he pretty much did everything so he wrote an autobiography about this whole incident later and the way he tells it is that he thought at first there was some kind of a mistake um, but he was hanging out with some spiritualists he later went on to marry a spiritualist and a medium and when he showed them the photo they were like this is it this is evidence of spirits and it really quickly took off in spiritualist circles as this kind of evidence of the spirit realm and this was something that spiritualists at the time were really really hungry for was like something that they could show to people to skeptics to kind of prove the validity of some of the experiences that they were reporting in the spirit circle so they really wanted some kind of tangible proof and um Mumler began taking other photos and other spirits half manifested forms hazy figures were also appearing in some of the other photos that he took so Mumler very quickly began to identify as a spiritualist he began to identify as a spirit photographer um and he made as world as um the civil war was you know going on and on and more and more people were dying he really um he really became an important figure in the spiritualist movement and he sort of launched spirit photography as a career in a sense like a lot of people other photographers began to imitate him they began to offer their services as spirit photographers and that became like something that someone could do for a living which before Mumler, it wasn't um and then there was a whole situation though because he ended up in there was this very sensational trial um, about a decade later, and he was charged, actually, P. T. Barnum, <laughs> like the circus guy. Yeah. The P. T. Barnum was very involved in this trial, um and it testifying against Mumler. But Mumler was charged essentially with fraud a lot of witnesses were brought in kind of for and against so there were a lot of people who were really convinced that you know Mumler was the real deal a lot of people who were convinced he was defrauding people they had trouble figuring out if he was tampering with the photographs how exactly he was doing it so ultimately the charges did not stick um but it was kind of a very complicated and scandalous chapter for him And he's sort of, he's very well known, like the Mumler trial is a very well known 19th century trial. So, yeah. Oh, and I should say the last thing about Mumler, one of the photos he took that no one has been, as far as I know, last I checked, no one has been able to figure out if it was tampered with, how it was tampered with, um, is he took a photo of Abraham Lincoln's widow in the years following The assassination of abraham lincoln Mm -hmm. and there's sort of a ghostly you know a ghostly figure of abraham lincoln in the frame and as far as i know last i checked no one has been able to figure out like if if that was like what tampering method was used for that photo so that's (laughs) mumler
1: that's and that's the photo i i always show people right away because they recognize mary todd lincoln and she's in her like i think she's still in kind of her victorian morning like 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 black black uh Mm -hmm. gear yeah and then Pete the big,
0: big headpiece.
1: Well, P. T. Barnum, even though I will give Mumler credit, Mumler's version was much better, but P. T. Barnum even said, you know, here's a photo of my head, and here's Abraham Lincoln right behind me. See, I can do it too. Now his <laughs> wasn't as good. So credit's gotta be given to Mumler because he, he definitely was figuring some stuff out. I I always introduce him as like the dude that figured out nineteenth century Photoshop.
2: <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Because
1: that's what it feels like. And uh, but I I, I know one thing i always felt is interesting about the uh, spiritualism is because of the era they were this religion and movement trying to say hey we're like the first scientific religion mm-hmm. and a lot of the evidence obviously was just kind of observational and like hey like this person just you know this medium's like hey do you do you have a dead person? Do you have a dead grandparent and then someone says, "Yes." <laughs> and they're like they're like science. That's evidence right there, you know? It it was just kind of yeah, uh, not the best, but having evidence in their hands, like a photo, um yeah. or having some kind of physical manifestation, you know, is further evidence. And and you have all this stuff going on during this time where you have the industrial revolution, you got like so, you know, what's the guy, I forget his name right now, who figures out, like, boy, you you have germs on your hands. You just need to wash your hands. And, like, germ theory yeah. starts to, like, yeah, right. save people's <laughs> lives. And all of this, this, med- this medical advancements, all of these things um, are yeah. just kind of playing into this also being a potentially scientific thing, mm. which I think is kind of cute how they thought that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, like, I think something else that's really interesting about that, because you're absolutely right. You know, there's this whole focus on like, you know, we're going to investigate the spiritual, like yeah. the spiritual can be quantified. Let's try to do it, you know. um. But also something that I think, and um, what's the book? Victorian Ghosts in the Noontide. It's an academic book um, by Vanessa Dickerson. That's right. One of the things she talks about, and that was an influential book for me when I was researching my book, um, is that For women during the 19th century, you know, women were really the backbone of the spiritualist movement in a lot of ways. Um, And for women in the 19th century, they were really barred from all of the other fields that you can think of that were sort of investigative, scientific in any way. You know, they were. And again, were there? Yes, there were some women like there were some women. Right. But there were very, very few for most women you know, to be a scientific professional, to be a medical professional. It was just really out of the question for ninety nine percent of them. Um, And so I think one of the other things that's really interesting about this kind of and this is something Dickerson talks about in her book is that, you know, spiritualism offered this kind of intellectual or professional outlet for women who maybe would have otherwise been drawn to medicine or drawn to a more mainstream scientific field, but they did not have access to those fields. But in spiritualism, they could, because in the 19th century, women were thought of as kind of the religious and moral center of the family, the spiritual center of the family. Um, And so because they had that kind of authority in a way as sort of being more religious, more spiritual, more whatever, um, in most other fields, that would almost count against them. Like, you can't be a medical man, you're a woman. But in, in the spiritualist movement it weirdly gave them an edge. Like yeah. th- there was a way that they could sort of leverage this, you know, increased like spiritual, innate spiritual ability that they were supposed to have and actually use that to make themselves like a professional authority, an investigative authority too. And and that I think is really fascinating to me how that sort of shook out. And I think that that um that that really probably impacted also a lot of this interest in what if we investigate it what if we make it scientific was because there were so many people in the spiritualist movement who couldn't really investigate any other way and also you know i don't want to give the impression that like the spiritualist movement was in any way like utopian or free from racism or free from misogyny or anything like that like it definitely wasn't but it was more accessible in a lot of ways to a lot of groups, including like I I write about. Um, who do I? Literally every name has uh, fallen out of my head. Oh, that's but, um, let,
1: Yeah, that's daily yeah. for me. Don't worry. Don't feel bad, Steele. Oh, wow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book and then immediately I come yep. back. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yep. I put it on the page and it's gone. Yep. Anyway, but um, it was more accessible, obviously, to women and also. And again, it varied, but in some cases to people of color as well. And so I think in a way that, again, medical establishments were not. And so I think that... You know, that's just really interesting, really interesting to me. And I think that's one of the reasons there was also so much emphasis on kind of science and investigation in that community.
1: Well, and with the women, too, it's what I love is that it gave a lot of women a platform to speak on sometimes, especially with like if you were one of those traveling trance mediums and you're sitting there on stage and you're going into your trance, you can be like, you know what? I want to give these guys a lecture on why women should be able to vote. And like you can just start talking because you have the floor, you're the medium, you're the entertainment. Um, And so, like, I I think a lot of women, you know, took advantage of that and they rightfully so.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, One of the things that I always made me cringe when I would look at a lot of this old timey stuff with the uh, spirit guides that assisted many mediums during the 19th century yeah. And I was like, why there a lot of them are Native American. Like they mm-hmm. quickly adopted like a Native American spirit guide. And I did there is a good book. I do have to commend you for writing a extremely accessible and readable book on this subject because so many of the books on the subject really come from academic stuff. And they can be a yeah. little harder to read, but Still fascinating with the information, but there's a whole, I'm not going to remember the name of the book. I have it on my shelf here. Um, But there's a whole chapter on like the whole like Native American usage as the spirit guide and all of that and why that was a little problematic back in the day, why they did it. Uh, But yeah.
2: (laughs) yeah yeah definitely no there's a lot i mean there's there's absolutely a lot there i mean obviously very clearly you know right out of the gate you can see i mean it's sort of it really goes beyond our sort of modern definitions of kind of cultural appropriation which is usually about you know adopting kind of like various you know cultural dress or something like that i mean they were really kind of you know adopting the voices literally Of, of deceased Native Americans. And this is during the 19th century when there's essentially a genocide underway yep. of Native Americans. Yep. So obviously way beyond even like a lot of what we talk about now with cultural appropriation. So I don't even know that I'll use that term because I think it's kind of like worse than, <laughs> worse than all. like, yeah. so whatever the level beyond that is. It's yeah. that. Um, uh, I think also at the time, you know, there was, Yeah, it was obviously, you know, extremely, (laughs) extremely, you know, again, beyond problematic. There were also, you know, I think there's definitely for the white mediums who, again, were, you know, most of the mediums. I think there's definitely kind of a 19th century version of the white savior complex coming in here in a lot of cases where it's kind of like because many, not all, many of the spiritualists were, you know, advocating for abolition. Some of them were trying to, you know, again, not necessarily by our standards, but for the time, trying to advocate for tolerance um, and, you know, humanity towards people of color. Not all of them, again, but, you know, some of the mediums were yep. doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were often doing it through, you know, a very 19th century white savior inflected kind of like, I will give a voice to these people who call, you know, like I will channel the spirits yeah. of these you know, dead people of color, essentially. And um, obviously looking back now from our perspective, we can see why that's, you know, (laughs) you know, kind of a catastrophe. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, but at the time for some of them, I mean, some of them were, Almost certainly, just doing it, you know, for for the views, essentially. Um, for some of them, they may have had some kind of sense of trying to be kind of for, for their time on the right side of history. Um, but obviously, you know, when we look back now, we can see, you know, just the massive implications of like a white person claiming to speak for these kind of um, right. victims yeah. of genocide, essentially.
1: <laughs> um, the other part of this era that is really fun is the whole kind of whimsical side of the Victorians obviously we know the 19th century was not you know always awesome like doctors yeah. were creepy. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of bad stuff going on like um, bad working conditions, child labor <laughs> um, all of this stuff but there was this whimsical side that people saw I think this this advancing world quickly changing, technology stepping in, And then, hey, let's return back to nature just a little bit. And I think there's this whole scene, which I know we had talked about in email. Like, I'm like, hey, Steele, what do you not get to talk about in your book? And you mentioned, like, the pre-Raphaelites and, like, the kind of gothic parts um, of the Victorian era. And when I – I had to remind myself who the pre-Raphaelites were. And then as soon as I saw their artwork, I was like, oh, that is so quintessential Victorian. Anybody yeah. that is ever, if you look up, oh, what would be the big one? Um, Lady of Shalott. John you just, William Waterhouse. Yes. Yep. Yep. If anyone looks that up, they're going to be everybody. I guarantee you everybody has seen that painting at least once yeah. in their lifetime somewhere. But what kind of, What was this part of the whole movement? Because this is separate, obviously, from spiritualism, but it's another yeah. equally fascinating part of this era.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love those chapters. I love the Gothic chapter and I love, I mean, I love all the chapters, but the Gothic chapter and the pre-Raphaelite chapter, you know, they were sort of, they were very interesting for me because, you know, for a lot of the other chapters, it was really obvious that they would go in a book about spiritualism, right? Like it was very obvious that in a book about Victorian spiritualism, you would have a chapter on spirit photography, a chapter on trances, like all of that. It was like with a lot of the other chapters, it was like, look, if you didn't have this chapter, it would be obviously missing. <laughs> People would miss it. Yep. Um, with the pre-Raphaelite chapter and the Gothic chapter, because those are essentially genres. It's like Gothic fiction, pre-Raphaelite painting. Those were really chapters that I sort of made the executive decision. I was <laughs> like, I want them in there. I really think that, you know, for readers of this book, they may not necessarily expect to see these chapters in there, but I think they'll make sense and they will really complement the other chapters oh, of 100%. the book.
1: percent. Yeah, it's a greater context of like the the era. I loved it.
2: Exactly. And so I really loved kind of like putting the thought into, okay, you know, what, like, what do these chapters look like? What am I going to talk about in these chapters? Because they weren't necessarily as obvious as the other chapters. So with the Gothic chapter and, you know, Gothic, because I'm, you know, working, I'm, I'm in a literature grad program, you know, the Gothic novel is also kind of my home base yeah. <laughs> in academia. Um, with the Gothic chapter, I think some of the things that were really fascinating to me, um, First of all, the emphasis in gothic fiction on phenomena and on kind of whether you can believe what your eyes and ears are picking up in the environment around you. You know, the gothic is a very psychological genre. And so there's all of this emphasis in like classic gothic horror on like, if you hear a child laughing in an empty house, like, are you losing your mind? Is it haunted? Is there a child hidden in here somewhere? What's going on? Is it like your tortured conscience? You know, if you think about these kind of classic gothic novels there's often this like deeply psychological, like what's happening, you know, in this home, in this Gothic castle, in this haunted house. Um, And that honestly really fascinated me when I think about like spiritualism, because spiritualism has such an emphasis on phenomena as well, you know, mediumship, all of that, there's this emphasis on phenomena. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Kind of returning to your five senses. And then also in Gothic fiction, there's kind of the figure of the Gothic heroine. There's also gothic heroes, but a lot of times in 19th century, uh, in 18th and 19th century gothic fiction, um, there were a lot of really important influential female novelists at the time. And so there were a lot of really, you know, important influential gothic heroines and some of the characteristics of the gothic heroines this sense that they're very perceptive that they can kind of see things in the environment that others can't really reminds me of sort of the figure of the medium in 19th century spiritualist circles and this sense of this woman who's kind of again has this sort of moral or spiritual authority you know this connection to a religious or spiritual realm, uh, but then is also able to see all of these things in the environment around her that other people aren't. Potentially frightening things, potentially the spirits of the dead, uh, but that she's picking up on things that other people aren't. Um, and then for the Pre-Raphaelite chapter, I adore Pre-Raphaelite art, and it was. So and I never cool. get to write about art because I'm a literary, <laughs> I'm a literary person. I'm in a literary program, so I adored writing that chapter. Um, and I also think with the Pre-Raphaelites, as you were talking about. Um, I mean their their art is everywhere in a weird way like if you especially if you're someone like if you read llewellyn books if you're into you know wicca witchcraft mythology you know i discovered the pre-raphaelites as a kid because i was exploring like when i first discovered wikipedia as a teenager i was going through all of the like classical like cassandra circe all of those figures clicking through their wikipedia pages and at the time for basically all of them there was a pre-raphaelite painting of that character as like the <laughs> leading image on that page and after seeing like 15 of them i was like "All of these kind of look similar and that was like and then i found out that they were like all by the same six painters basically <laughs> and they were all pre-raphaelites um but it's interesting because people don't i you know people talk about them a bit more there was a mini series about them a couple years ago But they don't necessarily well, they definitely don't have the same like name recognition that like the impressionists do or something. You know, they don't have that level of name recognition. Um, But if you're a person who's interested in kind of mythology, literature, folklore, fairy tales, you know, you've seen them. You've seen them everywhere. (laughs) Um, And so it was great getting to include them as well.
1: Now, it was cool because like I I was reminded about. Because um, I'm an English major, too, but, like, I haven't picked <laughs> up, like, a good classic book in forever. And I was reminded about – f- I totally forgot that, Um, like, Jane Eyre is considered an early gothic novel. Yeah. And I forgot – yeah, actually, there is, like, a creepiness to it. There is that that eeriness, that otherness with – um, oh, uh, I want to call her Bertha, but I don't feel like they named her. That's because of White Sargasso Sea. Um, the Lady um, Locked Leopard in the Tower. Mason.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, um, anyway, just, I, d- yeah. So I forgot how much, like, I actually enjoyed that genre and how many women wrote in that genre. And yeah. when you bring up, too, about how the goth- the gothic novel and the, quote, cursed family or haunted home, like that yeah. kind of concept. And, and the thing you feel that you should be most comfortable in becomes the things you're most scared of. Um, yeah. And I just like that kind of... I don't know. Like, now I want to go back and, like, pick up a bunch of gothic. Like, I'm going to have to go get some Anne Radcliffe Rand, and start reading again. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Um, so you are working on a pretty awesome, awesome, awesome Ph.D. Because I went and looked at your uh, bio on your website. And you're actually writing your doctoral dissertation about women, crime, and forensics in three genres of Victorian popular fiction, the Gothic novel, sensation fiction, and the detective story. I got to ask you, what is sensation fiction?
2: Absolutely so. Sensation fiction, speaking of something I could talk about forever, (laughs) um, sensation fiction was a very short-lived but explosively popular genre of specifically like British crime fiction. And it was sort of sandwiched in right before it sort of originated basically at the same time as detective fiction but detective fiction took a little longer to come into its own and then lasted a really long time and sensation fiction was basically like it started in like 1858 ruled the 1860s you know really popular Mm -hmm. genre in the 1860s and then was almost like out of favor by like 1873. Um, so crazy popular for a decade and then kind of just gone. Um, but sensation fiction was sort of similar to Gothic fiction. Um, but one of the hallmarks and I'll just actually throw out a couple of like well-known sensation, you know, I mean, sensation fiction in general isn't super well-known, but like top, top three kind of sensation novels. One would be the woman in white by Wilkie Collins. Okay. Um, one would be lady Oddly's secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. And then let's see, I also worked on Armadale, but um, what would another one be? Well, I'll I'll list for the third, I'll list Armadale by um, Wilkie Collins as well. He's my favorite. But, um, so those are just examples of sensation fiction for people who are like, which, you know, what's a sensation novel? But um, they were similar to Gothic fiction in that they tended to center kind of dramas in the home and intrigue in the home. Um, but they were also different because for Gothic fiction, kind of in the early 19th century, and especially the 18th century, a lot of times Gothic fiction was very, um, you know, the villains were very othered. They were very kind of exotic. There was this sense of like, um, Gothic novels, early Gothic novels were frequently, and this changed in the 19th century, but early Gothic novels, especially in the 18th century, they were frequently set kind of long ago and far away. So you would have British authors in like 1798 writing stories set in like medieval French castles or something or at a monastery in Italy in the 1500s or something like that. and that was like, it, it sort of lent it this scary, spooky atmosphere. But it also, in a weird way, was sort of comforting because it sort of suggested that all of these scary things were kind of happening like long ago in the past, uh-huh. far away. Yeah. Um. And also, frankly, like, you know, for the time, like in those Catholic countries, because yes. that was a big thing in the early, <laughs> no- that was a big thing in the early Gothic novel. Um, What sensation fiction did was it sort of brought a lot of these like dramas and whatnot, um it brought it into the present day into like upper middle class and upper class like London British society and very much there was this kind of sense of like the drama lurking next door so your perfectly normal seeming neighbor might have you know all of these sinister things going on in their household and sensation novels were also called bigamy novels because a lot of the sensation novel the popular sensation novel plots hinge on someone, frequently a woman in, in some of the better known, uh, examples who has like a, like sordid past and was married once before (laughs) and has this whole like, you know, secret scary background. And then she sort of presents herself as like a young, fresh faced kind of virgin, basically, and then marries some unsuspecting Lord and kind of becomes Lady Oddly Secret is like this and becomes like Lady of the Manor. Um, But behind like her angelic face, there's this whole secret and she's in it for the money and she's actually like terrifying and brilliant and frightening. Um, And so there was also a lot of anxiety around that time because there had just been a law passed to make divorce easier, which would have made bigamy less likely not more likely but it led to this for some reason this paranoia around bigamy and that was around the time that sensation novels were taking off (laughs) so they were kind of a weird they were like a weird hybrid genre um but and then they fell out of favor but some of those sensation novel characteristics about like actually sort of bringing the horror home to London and home to next door into this year, uh, did sort of get absorbed back into the Gothic genre. And you can see that like a few decades later, if you think about like the classic Gothic short story like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like literally in there you have like this seemingly respectable like British middle class doctor guy who at night is like this depraved maniac who's running around like doing all of this violence to people. So that was something that really shifted as a result of this sensation genre and other cultural shifts at the time. You know, it went from like this scary kind of, you know, in the early Gothic novel, the bad guy is like this mustache twirling, like Italian gentleman or something. And all of a sudden, it's like the nice guy next door. Um, And that was like a a big transition in the genre at the time.
1: (laughs) I love it. Again, I could talk about this till the end of days. I could (laughs) I could seriously take every single chapter out of your book and, like, spend, like, two hours on each one. I want to encourage everyone to uh, head to anywhere books are sold and pick up the latest book, Spirits, Sears, and Seances. If you loved everything that we were talking about on this episode, uh, there is a lot more information in Steele's book. And like I said earlier in the show, it's extremely accessible. There is not a boring part in this book. I read it in two days. Um, and it would be a book that I will go back and just reference because it's so well written and like again accessible because I can't stress enough how many books on spiritualism are on my bookshelf right now that are very just much for the academic realm good information but like not a you know just sit down with a cup of coffee kind of read so uh, (laughs) thank you so much Steele for spending time with us going all over the place going all over 19th century Victorian uh, realms with us and talking about this era Um, what are you uh, besides your dissertation are you going to be continuing to write more books
2: I host first of all thank you so much for having me on yeah. um, and uh yes i i'm thinking about writing more nonfiction. i'm sort of going back and forth on which projects i want to work on first but i definitely want to write uh, victorian historical fiction i want I to do a novel about like the novel version of the book i just wrote so yeah. i would like to do historical fiction or historical fantasy about victorian spiritualists uh, so that's something that i'm working on but very very slowly while i try to finish the dissertation
1: well i can't wait so we'll have you back on the yeah, show when that's done or we're back on the show to just talk about whatever chapter in this book you know no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. Um, so uh we are glad to be back um because we have been gone for a really long time. So thank you yeah. for all of our listeners for coming back and listening to this show. Yeah, thanks for listening. And um, yeah, until we until we meet again, everyone.
0: Thank you Bye. again. Thank you, Steele. Bye. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you soon.
1: Thank you. Ghostly
2: talk <laughs> ah. Ah.